This is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. Let me tell you a little story. In 2012, I ran into my buddy, travel writer Rolf Potts, who was opening for legendary travel writer Pico Ayer at the University of Pennsylvania campus. When I mentioned to Rolf that I was writing a book, he said that I simply had to meet Rachel Friedman. Author of The Good Girl's Guide to Getting Lost, a memoir of three continents, two friends, and one unexpected adventure, Rolf loves that book. He even says so on the cover. I quote, Friedman's coming-of-age memoir captures the excitement and bewilderment of testing out life's possibilities on the far side of the world. Now, a year later, I'm pleased to announce that I finally did meet up with Rachel in New York, and yes, Rolf, she's as lovely as you claimed. Let's see, my life before the book. I was in college, that's probably the best place to start. I was a music major in college and I thought I was going to pursue a professional career as a violist and be in a symphony, Hmm. live in that world. And when I got to music school in Boston, it just became clear very quickly that I had been a big fish in a small pond and now it was the reverse and I was really overwhelmed. I knew that this wasn't for me any longer and I left music school and transferred to another university and while I was there I was really lost and trying to figure out sort of what my next step were and this moment when I saw all these other students kind of being able to prepare themselves for the real world for the next step and and sort of figuring out their identities I really felt like I had lost my identity you know Mm -hmm. as a musician it just it had encompassed everything I thought about who I was as a person. I was really lost when I graduated and the summer before I graduated I had gone to Ireland and met an Australian girl who after we had stayed friends and I was graduating and just was lamenting to her not knowing what to do and she said why don't you come to Australia so I'm trying to keep this short which I'm very bad at but I ended up traveling you know for another year with her and on my own and when I got back from those trips and, and I continued to travel even once I was home in sort of sh- shorter spurts. When I got back, I started writing about those travels and eventually went to grad school. And that's where I really started thinking, maybe there's a book here, maybe there's something larger. Because I, what I hadn't seen on the road were women and young 20-something women doing solo travel from the U.S., yeah. All these other countries were doing this, but right. we weren't doing it. And it was really frustrating to me. And I felt like part of the thing I could contribute by writing about my experiences would be to make it feel accessible yeah. to other women to go. Totally. So the character you're talking about is obviously the uh, infamous Carly. Carly, yes. <laughs> Carly. She's awesome. Yeah. She's um, Yeah. So, okay, you first go to Ireland and you do that on your own. What made you even decide, okay, I'm going to do this on, on my own? I don't know. I just knew. (laughs) I knew that I needed to get away. Yeah. And I wasn't someone who was at all particularly brave. I was independent, but I hadn't traveled a lot and I hadn't Mm -hmm. traveled alone a lot. But I just had this feeling like I had all these voices in my head, parental voices and friend voices and societal voices kind of making me feel like I was being pulled in a lot of different directions in terms of how to start my life after college. Yeah. And I just thought if I can't, I cannot get away from these voices while I'm still 
geographically here, you know? So I just was like, where can I go that's kind of cheap to get to, where I can get a visa, where I can work? I think instinctually I knew to protect myself against being totally overwhelmed by another culture. So I was like, okay, they Uh speak English. And I also, I had read a lot of Joyce that year in college, and I had this romantic vision of Ireland as this dreary, rainy, literary place that I could just sink into and kind of be morose and thoughtful and whatever I thought I was, you know, at 20. (laughs) But even your first day there, it was like sunny and Mm -hmm. (laughs) what is this? Yeah. Already starting out different than I imagined. Yeah, absolutely. Those expectations. I mean, that's like a great thing when they get upturned and they certainly did. So you were how long in Ireland? So I was in Ireland for the summer. I was there for, I think, four months? Four months. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so you met Carly pretty soon into that, didn't you? I did. I went to Dublin. When I landed, I was in Dublin. Mm -hmm. And... I was truly overwhelmed by Dublin. The the city, the, the going out, like sort of temple bar area. Yeah. And, and it's the first time I'd been in a hostel. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of jarring to me, like these men sleeping in your room. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was a bit skittish. So someone had told me, go to Galway. It's this beautiful town. It's like, the, it's the real Ireland, the west of the Ireland. You know, yeah. it's the Irish Ireland, they yeah. said to me. And then that became this romantic idea so I hopped on a bus and went out there and I stayed in a hostel again but had a great experience and eventually I was in an internet cafe maybe a week into my trip maybe not even and I saw an ad for a girl that needed a roommate and I answered it yeah so that's how I met Carly so what I find really interesting correct me if I'm wrong but Carly at the beginning of the book is really your guide and she's helping you find your strength and travel you're kind of tagging along with her and what I find interesting is the more you travel together you're starting to break away and you're finding your own strength and independence and pushing her a little bit away and finding your own wings abroad and I love that, that you can see that change in character, that change in your personality even. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case and that's part of what interesting and complex about our dynamic because Mm -hmm. you know I've always been someone who kind of looks for answers and I find guides you know I, Mm -hmm. I really do I think that as you say that I've feel as though that's a pattern in my life in general, probably up until very recently. And still, I'm always I'm always someone who's asking for advice. Although I know I have a lot easier time the older I get. You know, for some reason, you know, hitting my 30s has been great for this. But I, I have a much stronger sense of my own voice and my totally. own internal compass mm-hmm. that I really didn't have in my 20s, especially. And especially because I did feel so vulnerable, like I said, with that I... I sort of had thought I knew who I was, you know, and then I didn't any longer. And so I was really vulnerable in a good way, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, Carly is, you know, we are still the closest of close friends and to, to sort of strong personalities I've always been affected by, you know, and uh-huh. Carly has this really larger than life personality. She's very bold. She's very sure of herself. And of course, those are broad strokes. You know, I mm-hmm. think one of the re- things that I realized and and that I realized a lot as I was writing the book and as she and I talked through different scenes in the book, you know, I was asking her a lot to corroborate my memory and mm. asking her to give me sort of her perspective on those moments and became very clear, of course, that like she's not always sure of herself just like none of us are always sure of herself but she became this sort of stand-in for another type of guide in my life and I really Mm -hmm. looked to her for a long time for insight about Mm -hmm. 
how to be in the world. And I also really admired her. She came from a family that, although in some ways similar class background and whatever that entails, she had a really adventurous set of parents, you know, especially, mm-hmm. especially an adventurous mother who herself had taken an around the world trip. Carly's grandmother had taken mm-hmm. an around the world trip. I mean, this is, this was just mind boggling to me yeah. to come from this legacy of like badass women travelers, you know, totally. that's not the legacy I came from. And so, you know, part of me really wanted kind of for a while to be her, you know, to live like that. So what did your family think? I mean, they're like, where did she come from? What is this? Who is this Rachel? Yeah, you, yeah. (laughs) I think my family is still surprised by that. You know, and it's just, they use words like brave to me now for the, like, the most mundane kinds of things, right? Like, even, like, living in New York is brave, right? Okay. (laughs) You know, my dad does not rough it. He, you know, he's not at all of that sort of ilk. And my mom actually has started traveling a lot as as she's semi-retired now. And she and her husband have an an RV and they travel for like months out of the year. So she has become a real traveler, but she didn't used to be when my parents were married. And and I do think that my decisions and my travel choices still shock them. They are surprised. It is just, it's something in me that doesn't seem to have an initial connection to anyone in the family though I will say that my grandparents are I remember them really only as sort of scared elderly people but my grandfather Mm -hmm. moved to the U.S. during World War II before that he grew up in what is now Ukraine but what was Czechoslovakia he was as a young man training in what was going to be the Israeli Navy in Italy and then during that the war broke out and he came over here without knowing anyone and, and sort of made this whole new life so I do in some ways, I find myself connecting mm-hmm. to, to that. Of course, that's travel really for totally different reasons and in the end for self-preservation. But mm-hmm. I do think of him as very, very brave and yeah. very worldly. I mean, he knew at the height of his mental prowess, you know, he knew like six languages fluently and could sort of get by with two more. You know, he was just huh. really cosmopolitan and yeah... So it's in your blood. It's somewhere in there. <laughs> it's there. It's somewhere in there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so after Ireland, mm-hmm. you went back to school? After Ireland, I went back to okay. school. I really didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just flabbergasted by this whole world opening up to me all of a sudden. And I, you know, Carly had been like, you just don't go back. Like, you'll get great student deals. You can finish in a year. You can finish in two years. I was compelled by that. But in the end, this student impulse went out. I'm glad mm-hmm. I finished it when I did because I do think it gets harder and harder mm-hmm. to go back to that world. But yeah, I went back for my senior year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then that's when Carly's like, all right, great. Now you're done with school. Let's go traveling again. Come to yeah. Australia. Yeah. She's like, oh, I'll have you back. So, so yeah, she said, come to Australia. You can work here. You can get a visa, which I could. And you can stay with me and my family. And I really thought I would just get there. I would stay with them for a week or two. And then I would find a hostel. But they just wouldn't hear of it, you mm-hmm. know. And we just all got along so well. They had the room. They had the kind of casual, easygoing personalities that can accommodate a backpacker for five months so I just stayed and I had the best time with them and I actually this past summer I went back to Australia for seven weeks and I stayed with them again so I think that they just know that that's par for the course that you know every 
I don't know, every eight years, Rachel yeah. will come over and yeah. move in with us for some <laughs> ungodly length of time. Yeah. So then what was your and Carly's relationship at that point? When we, when I moved Back over to Australia, Australia yeah, in because, my 20s, yeah. Yeah, so Ireland was going mm-hmm. on some adventures and trying to figure out, you know, what is this travel? What's, you know, and now yeah. Australia, what was that about? Yeah, I mean, so that was a kind of interesting, different context because... We only overlapped for Ireland for about six weeks, actually. So that's the whole amount of time that we knew each other. And during the time that we were in Ireland, we worked opposite hours. So she was working days in a cafe, and I worked at a pub and eventually a really skeezy nightclub at night until like four in the morning. And I would come home, and we would just cross in the night, kind of. I mean, we Mm -hmm. slept in the same room, but we barely saw each other. Mm -hmm. And we had a kind of couple weeks before she took off again where we really had some time to spend together but she really didn't like me I mean initially she was sort of like it's not that she didn't like me she was like kind of disinterested in me and not that into Americans you know what I mean just as a general kind of again broad sweep and stereotypes and and so yeah so I really had to win her over (laughs) so yes I was in Australia and I did do a lot of traveling kind of on my own up the coast and through the center and all of that but when I was with Carly you that was her space. And so mm-hmm. she, we weren't both travelers in that moment. If anything, it was like being sisters. You know, I, yeah. mean, I moved in with her and her family and we were just replicating this familial dynamic. And so it was so great because I felt like the best way to get to know a place is to be with the people who live there. And uh-huh. so I was not like a tourist in a lot of ways in Australia. Mm-hmm. It was just like I lived there. That's how it felt to me. Like I live here. I you know, I take the bus to work every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very different than than what Ireland had been. Well, I'm glad that you say that because that's the way that I traveled around. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I lived with the locals, and it and it was slow travel. Mm-hmm. I mean, as slow as I could. I still it was a month in each place. So that's still pretty fast. But yeah, the point is, is that I didn't feel like a tourist jumping around. I felt like okay, now I'm part of this family. What's that mm-hmm. about? And you know, and I, the things that you discover by doing that. It's incredible, just even their little secret spots you'd never hear about, or just even what does it mean to now be in this culture? And it's so fascinating. It is. I'm obsessed with the kind of insider-outsider status, and I'm Mm. really drawn to how close I can get to the inside, you know? And it's why I'm not one of those people who has every stamp imaginable in their passport. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a return trips kind of person, you know? Mm -hmm. I go back. I realize that that's what I enjoy most. Yeah. Yeah. After Australia, yeah, you guys decided to do South America. Yes. I was like, <laughs> now you're ready for South America, yeah. right? She's been toughening me up slowly. Yeah. yeah, so then we really did the backpacking thing. Because again, even in Ireland, you know, yes, I was a traveler. And yes, there was travel around other parts of the country. But I was living in Galway for the most part. I was living with Carly with an Australian and then I was living with two guys, one from Spain, one from Basque Country. So we had this kind of international setup and it felt very foreign. But South America was really the first like hardcore backpacking Mm -hmm. that I had done. And I loved it. And it was the most challenging trip that I definitely had done since then and maybe have ever done. Just in terms of practicalities and number of times I thought I was going to die. Totally. (laughs) It makes good stories when you survive. Yes, it does. (laughs) It does. Well, there's this line that I love from your book. It's who you are when you are tested might not be pretty, but it's always real. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Sure, I still believe that. Okay, so is this really when we see Rachel 
changing. I think you see it in different ways in all three of the sections of the mm -hmm. book. It was such a time of change throughout. But I think that probably... It's like South America was when the training mills were taken off, you know? Yeah. Probably to the most extreme measure. And it's the time, too, when I think I start to assert my own sense of self with Carly and start mm -hmm. to understand that even though we're great friends and I greatly admire her that I'm not her and I don't have to be her and not being her is not a failing while I'm traveling around. She does have, I don't know if less fear is the right way to describe it, but she, she is more badass than I am, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I... Well, even the <laughs> way she talks about, like, death road, I mean, yeah. she's like, so we die. What? It's like, and it's not because, you know, and I have talked to her about, again, that very moment, and she's like, it's not that I'm not scared. I just don't know what the point of indulging in that fear is, essentially. Huh. She is scared, but it doesn't help her to engage in that. What helps her, what's easier for her, is to zone out or to not think about it, put on music, or pretend it's not happening because hmm. she knows she she can't do anything about it. And, you know, and this is a very American thing, that this the control that we want over every situation and the guarantee yeah. that we want that everything's going to be okay. Which is just fake anyway, really. It's totally so. fake. And Australians don't have, if I can make, a, again, a sweeping generalization, Australians mm -hmm. do not have that sense. I think Americans are... The, the ones who have that sense the most of anywhere you'll ever go. This idea that that we need guarantees of our safety, and maybe we feel it less and less as things happen. You know, mm -hmm. so recently in in Boston, for instance, but there are these mm -hmm. moments of terrorism and various other disasters that have shaken that in us. Yeah. I think significantly, but we still more than any other place. We believe that everything's going to be okay and that we're sort of entitled for everything to be totally. okay, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she doesn't have that. And I would say that many more Australians do not have that. They're realists in a way that was very new to me, her outlook. So I think that's what's going on there is I was really struggling with this idea that something bad could actually happen to me. Yeah. And not only that, like I signed on for it. Right. So it's not really productive to lament it now yeah. that I'm here in this moment. Mm -hmm. But of course you want to, you know, I wanted to be like, why am I even here? Like Carly made me be here. And I wanted to have this, this sense of blame and this sense of control. And yeah, that's not stuff she needs. Right. <laughs> She's not interested in any of that. She's just like, well, we're here in this moment. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's scary. Yeah. Well, let's move on. Exactly. You know, that's interesting. Now, have you carried that back with you to the States? The idea, which part? Just the, the you know, less fear-based. I don't think that I have less fear, but I think I let it get in the way a lot less mm -hmm. than I ever have before. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the key. Like, I don't think the trick is absence of fear. I think it's still doing things that you want to do even though you have those feelings. Mm -hmm. And I also... Well, we're psychologizing me, um, which I, I love it. seem to be doing. <laughs> I do think that I do things sometimes solely because I'm scared of them. Um, As a challenge? Yeah. In a way that people don't do things because of fear. I'm like the person who may do something I don't need to do because it scares me. And that's because of your adventure. I think that's just because for so long... I had so much fear. I felt yeah. like such a fearful person. And so I think I sometimes veer the opposite. Really, fear can be useful, right? I yeah. mean, it's there for a reason. So maybe I veer sometimes too far in the other direction to re-solidify my sense of self that like, okay, I'm not like this scared little person anymore. At the end of your 
journey, mm -hmm. end of your year. Yeah. Can you sum up somehow what you're feeling and, you know, you're about to go back to the States and now what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I was still feeling, oh God, what now? Mm -hmm. But I think that what I had post-travel, even though I didn't really know what I was going to do, is I had a stronger sense of self. I had less need to know all the answers at once, which mm -hmm. is something that I felt like I did need after I left music school because I was so lost and I just wanted someone to tell me, you know, what I was supposed to do. What's the path? What's the path here? Yeah. Yeah. Just set me down somewhere, point me in a direction. Mm -hmm. So I know which way to walk. And I think that traveling, it made me realize that that was just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, that that was a ridiculous idea and that all you really needed to do was have a sense of what compelled you, what you desired, and you could sort of move towards those things in a more organic way as opposed to thinking your life could only look one way. Right. You know, my whole vision of my life and the world just became more flexible after mm -hmm. traveling. And I became a less controlling person. Yeah. You know, I was like chilled out. And I'm not a chill person, but I had chilled yeah. significantly after traveling. And, you know, I came back. My friends were, many of them, in these very specific trajectories. And although I had moments of kind of envying that and thinking like, oh, I'm behind them or whatever, my overwhelming sense was that's great for them, but... Mm -hmm. There's time, you know, I'd always felt like time was this precious commodity that I never had enough of. And when you see time stretch out on the yeah. road, you know, this like slow travel that you're talking about, mm -hmm. you just have a different perspective when you come home. Totally. And yeah. that's why your book resonated with me so much was seeing this arc in, in your personality, your, your adventure, you know, how you say that you just had more of a sense of self. That's exactly what I tell people about after my year abroad is I was just more me, <laughs> you know, like a stronger sense of me. Now let's talk about transitioning back to the States. So now you're a stronger sense of you. And then where do you fit in into the States? How was your transition back? Because for me, it was really hard. Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. People don't talk about that as much, you know? I think there's there's a couple of reasons people don't because if you're a traveler, you know what that's about. And it's yeah. sort of like a given that you have this transition period. And if you're not a traveler, people don't get it, right? Or it's yeah. like it's like boring. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, it's hard to be back home, right? So, But it is hard to be back home. And you've changed. The place has changed. You're, you're again, you're weirdly straddling like insider, outsider, but you're on your own turf. And mm -hmm. so it's super disruptive. So yeah, I had a really, really tough time transitioning back. And it's probably the reason that I went back to school because like many a person who has gotten a graduate degree, it sort of just seemed like something to do. I don't regret it, but I wish that I had maybe just gone traveling for another year. <laughs> you know, like... Which would have been um, another education. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like the only... When people ask me if I have any regrets about taking time off and being on a little bit of a slower path, I guess, in terms of people have ideas about ambition and careers and all of that. Yeah. My only regret is that I didn't travel longer. Totally. And yeah. that's what I tell people. I'm like, you, I just think you should do whatever you want into like, once you hit 30, maybe you can start thinking about, okay, like I need a plan. Yeah. Whatever. I would, if it were, if I had to do it over again, I'd take my whole twenties and just live abroad and backpack nice. and do more of it. Yeah. 
Well, I would love it if you would read a section of the book. Oh, sure. Uh, this little paragraph right here. Ah, okay, so this is from the very end. Mm. What I found on the road was a tiny piece of myself, the one I kept unknowingly shuttered for so long in order to play the many roles I thought were mine. It was no cyclone, but these past few years I had survived my own personal disasters and realized I was strong enough. I was on the other side. In this new place, I could hear the whispering voice inside my head growing louder, my voice. Not those of my parents or teachers or Carly or Muriel even, telling me how to live my life without fear or worry or doubt that nothing was going according to plan, as though such a plan ever existed in the first place. I love that. Thanks. <laughs> All right, so are you ready for your Traveler's 10 questions? Yep. All right. What travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? I love Undress Me in the Temple of Heaven, mm -hmm. Susan Jane Gilman's book. That's mm -hmm. wonderful. What do you love so much about that? I, I read that, actually, as I was working on my own book, and she is kind of in the same age that I was when I was backpacking this young 20s. And I just think that that book is beautiful for its depictions of the places that she goes to but she's also just a beautiful writer i don't want to say she's not a travel she's not a travel writer she's just a writer who comes at travel yeah. and i just think it's beautifully written can i just say that yeah of yeah. course that's really the essence of it is that i think she's a wonderful writer and it's a beautifully written book beautiful voice mm. what destination do you consider a best kept secret yeah so inherently, I've, I consider it a best kept secret. Why would I? Why would you? Tell you? Yeah. <laughs> yes, which I'm sure other people have said yeah. to you too. But I have what's probably just a surprising answer, which is that for the first time a week and a half ago, I went out to Portland, and I had some extra days, and so I drove from Seattle to San Francisco, which of course oh. everyone knows as being a beautiful area, the coastal roads down Oregon. But I don't think people fully appreciate the fact that for me, this is the most beautiful part of the country I'd ever huh. seen. I mean, and I've, I've been around. And it's not just that, but I was gonna say the best kept secret about this is not the actual roads, but is actually the time of year to go because I was there in April, which is still the off season, but the weather was good and there was no one around huh. and everything was cheaper. It all felt very sleepy and sometimes in this wonderful way, you know, you pull off the road in so many of these different places and you have the beach to yourself. And it was just brilliant. So huh. April, the coastal roads from Oregon to California. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. What site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? So I'm going with the Colosseum in Rome. Because oh, nice. I'm just going with a classic. Yeah. Largest amphitheater of the Roman Empire. Yeah sort of tourist must-do. I just think that it is overwhelming in its spectacularness. You know? I have a funny story. Briefly, when I was yeah. 10, I saw that. The only time I've seen the Colosseum. And you know how, of course, things have caved in, and so you just see all of the maze-like underbelly of the Colosseum. And so when the movie The Gladiator comes out, I didn't understand why I wasn't seeing the maze, you know, and it was just, you know, solid ground. And I'm like, right. and so I was telling people, I'm like, no, I've been there and I know it's not like that. So how could the gladiator get the Coliseum so wrong? Well, anyway. Yeah. A little it's embarrassing. Great. So it's great. maybe also revisit places you were at when you were 10. Yes. So what, what and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? This, I think, is more about where I was state of mind than the actual meal, but I was in a small town in Bolivia called Ronabaki, which hmm. is, is on the Bolivian side of the Amazon, and Carly and I were there, and we had been on this really treacherous 
bus ride for many hours and we're just sort of happy to be alive. <laughs> we kind of followed locals who we saw heading down this road where there was this long, long, long line and they were all waiting for this chicken that was being roasted on a spit. We just got in line and we had our chicken and our potatoes. It was like a dollar, but you know, we just sat on the stoop with all of these locals and it just felt like I was at the ends of the earth, you yeah. know? And I just felt so remote and primal in terms of, we were, we were so hungry and there's nothing fancy about it. It just felt incredibly fulfilling and substantive, the experience. And the food was good too, it was a little <laughs> greasy, <laughs> yeah. What was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road and how could other travelers avoid it? So this actually relates to that meal because that bus ride that I was saying was along a road that's called the Death Road, the Spanish translation. It's a little ominous, really. <laughs> yeah, and it was called the Death Road because on average, I think one vehicle every two weeks would go over the edge. No way. Yeah, so it was, it was terrifying. And most people who were smarter and less cheap than us fly from La Paz huh. to Rurinabaki, but we wanted to save money, so we took this. And you don't actually have to take it now because there's the new road. The, on the most dangerous stretch, my understanding is there's actually a new road that's been built. So How do you feel about that? Oh, you know, it's so easy to have nostalgia right. for the harder experience, right? But, but you would take the easier now, maybe. Would you? I don't know the answer to that. Probably. And probably tourists don't take the other, you know, like it's probably hard for tourists to even get on the other road now because they don't hmm. want tourists dying, <laughs> you know, and you know, sending bad, back these bad stories. Bad news, bad press. <laughs> yeah, it's not great press. Yeah. So, so sure, I'd probably take the easier road. It's Look, it's still South America. It's still terrifying to drive anyways, you know. Yeah. It's not like these roads aren't still carved way up into the mountains and have their own treacherous nature anyways. Yeah, yeah sure. No, but it's easy to be like more badass to yeah. take the other one, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great that you did get to take that yeah. original. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What passport stamp still eludes you? I've never been to India, oh. and I'm just crazy motivated to get there in the near future. Yeah. Oh, India's huge. You're going to have to spend some time. Maybe that'll be your next I year. I know. I hope so. That would so. be great. I hope so. All right. <laughs> what is your most cherished souvenir and why? I think that it is the tattoo that I got when I was 15 in Israel. That was my first trip abroad without parents. I was yeah. with a temple youth group. It felt very wild and it just felt like that tattoo, even though it was, I, I hope there are no 15 year olds like listening to the podcast <laughs> and getting an idea, but you know, it just felt like I was like, staking a claim in the world or something. What's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? Well, and this is so boring and not a great answer, but I do take tea. Okay. And I know that that's a simple one, but I do actually pause in my day in the afternoon and nice. have tea. You know, is that from Ireland then? I guess it's, I mean, I suppose I've done it in a couple of different countries. Uh -huh. And actually, it's probably more even from Argentina. Even though I don't drink mate, you know, the Argentinian mm -hmm. tea, Probably my sense of the ritual of tea and this idea of it being community endeavor is actually probably more from Argentina than Ireland or, or England, but I do have a lot of friends in Commonwealth countries 
who are prone to this ritual. Mm-hmm. And I really, I like the idea of, of pausing. You know? Yeah. In Argentina, even going to stores, the shopkeepers would hand me mate and yeah. pass it around. It's like, <laughs> yeah, right, a little uh, unsanitary, but right. I'll, I'll do it. Yeah, it's amazing. Just, right. And you're like, that's what, you know, immunity's for. Like, yes, we, yes, exactly. We'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? My biggest piece of advice is to buy the plane ticket and worry about everything else later. Nice. Because I think that you let ideas of the trip or worries, concerns, fears, money, you let all this stuff get in the way. What always I've people asking me, well, when you get there, like, where are you going to stay? And how are you going to make friends? And how will you know where to go eat? And it's like, well, all that stuff will work itself out because you don't yeah. have any other choice. Yeah. So if you can just take the first action, yeah. I think that that is the key thing. Agreed. Know? Yeah. It's really self-empowering besides when you make all these plans I mean, they're going to change anyway. So absolutely. What's the point? Absolutely. All right. And then finally, what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? I think that it's a little bit what I was talking about in terms of my feelings when I returned to the States, this idea of more flexibility about where I fit in the world. But I think traveling, you come into contact with so many different people and so many different kinds of lives. You realize that you're not stuck in one existence. We're especially lucky if we're Americans, we're traveling, you're probably in a financial position that is if not a wonderful financial position compared to the rest mm-hmm. of the world, mm-hmm. very lucky, right? And yeah. and traveling is a luxury. Not everyone from every country gets to do it. So if you're from one of these countries with a robust middle class and you're lucky enough to be part of that or beyond that, then you really do have a lot of options in terms of the way you live your life. And you don't have to just think that everything is set out for you and that there's this one path. And I felt like traveling was so liberating because I was like, I could totally go hang out in Thailand for a year and work at an orphanage or, or whatever. You just, you see all these possibilities stretch out in front of you. And for me, for someone who was very sheltered as a child, who had a very narrow sense of who she thought she had to be in the world. Traveling is what made me realize that there were endless possibilities. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer because I, I guess that's just why I want to thank you for this book again because you were able to articulate and sum up exactly how I felt from my year abroad and transitioning back that I am still trying to find that a way to talk so about. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. If you happen to live anywhere in the vicinity of New York, or if we've inspired you to travel, make sure to hear Rachel speak at David Farley's popular Restless Lakes reading series next Monday, September 9th at 7 p.m. at the Solace Bar in East Village. You can find details on Facebook. Otherwise, grab a copy of Rachel's book on Amazon.com or in all major bookstores, And also follow her adventures at www.rachel-friedman.com. By the sounds of it, this girl's got plenty of world left to explore. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.